This is WCG Patient Radio. I'm Steve Smith, President of Patient Advocacy for WCG, a company focused on the ethical, safe, and efficient treatment of people who volunteer to be in clinical trials to develop new medicines for unmet medical needs. We're speaking today with Dr. Emil Kakis, Chief Executive Officer of Ultragenics Pharmaceuticals, a company that focuses on rare diseases in an effort to create new treatments for families that live with rare and even ultra-rare diseases for which there is usually no cure and often not even a treatment. Dr. Akakis is also the founder of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, a patient advocacy group that gives patients a voice on Capitol Hill. Through that foundation, patients who might otherwise be isolated and alone with their disease find a collective voice and common ground with many others with many rare diseases. Good morning, Dr. Akakis. Good morning, Steve, and thanks for having me on the podcast today. Sure, sure. I, I've got some questions for you I'm really interested to hear you comment on, and I see that you are a real change agent in the world of rare diseases. You have succeeded where most fail in getting new clinical trials up and running and completed with data that passes FDA scrutiny to result in FDA approvals of first-time medicines to treat a number of rare diseases. Without those treatments, patient families and their physicians had no other options, no cures, no treatments, nothing. And in these patient communities, it's not unusual for doctors to tell patients there is no cure. Go home and enjoy your child's life while you can. In many cases, those children would either pass away or lose significant cognitive or physical function. And I'm speaking of new approved drugs from the trials you drove for very serious childhood onset progressive debilitating and sometimes fatal disorders including for those who, are, who follow these things, the mucopolysaccharide diseases, MPS 1, 2, 4, 6, and as well as other diseases like PKU. And I know that you've worked on a number of other rare diseases, and today in the pipeline, you've got some too. So I wanted to start by asking you, what got you started with rare disease drug discovery specifically? and What was that like? Well, Steve, I, I got started in, in drug discovery during my fellowship um, after my residency as a pediatrician, and my fellowship was in medical genetics, and I was working with Dr. Neufeld, a scientist at UCLA, who had just cloned a gene for a rare disease called MPS1. And because that, the availability of a gene that would allow us to do things in potentially treating that disease that never happened before, it was an opportunity. But truthfully, I didn't know anyone with that disease, and I didn't have any history in, in rare disease in general. But I was interested in the possibilities in medical genetics with all the cloning of genes that were happening, that the door to treatment was now opening, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time to take advantage of some science and try to proceed on developing a treatment. And that got me started, but once you get started, you once you start realizing the potential change in the future of people's lives for for diseases that they thought would never be treated and that no one would ever care. It's, it's a compelling story, and it's certainly one I just felt like I wanted to repeat over and over again in my career. I know that the funding from some of that early research came in part from a patient advocate dad, a father, who raised a lot of money to, tr- to try to save his own son's life by getting someone, anyone, to develop a new drug for that incurable disorder that's called MPS1, or Hurler syndrome. Tell us about the impact that the Dant family that's the, Mark Dant was the father, and their son was Ryan. He has he has the disease. What was the impact on you and on the project of having their son be the first patient dosed, and 
in terms of your how you felt about your research and what that propelled you to do after that. And what about your company and the investors and the larger community of rare disease people looking to see how that trial was going to go? Well, when I first was working on this, um, Steve, the the research was a bit more of an academic abstract project. Could we make this enzyme and treat animals who also have MPS1? And when we did that, we saw that it was could work and was possible. And I thought that was the end of my story. But we couldn't find any company pick up that project. And we didn't really have enough funding to really keep it going. And so there's a point in time in 1994 when it wasn't going to go anywhere and might have died. And I was fortunate for two reasons. I met the Dant family and they had started raising money and they really helped keep the, the research going and push it forward. But I also met the Brian Dan himself and gained the inspiration of knowing this is not just abstract science, but it's a little kid in his life and his family who are struggling. And it it makes the research have the kind of power and motivation that tells you that I can't not push this forward. I have to find a way. And that inspiration, as well as some of the funding, allowed us to push ahead on getting that treatment to the clinic and ultimately being in the room with the Dant family and Ryan and starting his first infusion. There's nothing more exciting than being in the room of the family who thought the kid's life was a trajectory down toward death and to be in a room at that moment and start an infusion of something that leads to a little more uncertainty, unknown, what will happen now? It's not a guarantee. Maybe, maybe things will turn around and and for Ryan, he's done well and been on treatment now uh, more than 20 years and grown up and went to high school and college and recently got engaged. So it's a great story of family finding a researcher, helping get the treatment done and actually helping their kid. Yes, that is a wonderful story. And the, the parents were told um, really that there was no cure and he was probably going to pass away by age 10. And so there he is. He's an adult, and like you say, he's even engaged to be married now. So that's um, that <clears throat> that project of yours that grew the way it grew has helped Ryan and of course so many others. As you went to increasingly um, more and more diseases using similar, and and one of the problems I know that you faced was these are very small patient populations, so it's hard to to collect the data in a statistically powerful way that convinces the FDA of the safety and efficacy of the drug. So um, you not only kept doing that, but you started a nonprofit organization, which is also thriving today, called the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, the Every Life Foundation for Rare Disorders. And it, it gives patients a collective voice on Capitol Hill so they can talk to regulators I talk to legislators who change the rules that the regulators have to use. So the FDA has a boss, and that boss is Congress, I like to say. And you taught patients and to talk to Congress and to collaborate with pharmaceutical companies so they're not just sitting at home waiting. They can get out and do something. So tell us a little bit about the Every Life Foundation that just celebrated its 10th year anniversary. Why did you start this? What was your reason for starting it, and what impact has it actually made? Well, I founded the Everlife Foundation for Rare Disease in 2009, and at that time, I'd had a decade of working on drug development of rare diseases, and 
there are many things that are challenging for rare diseases that are not a problem for the larger, more common diseases. And I felt the system could improve and adapt to allow us to develop safe and effective drugs that had the flexibility required in order to evaluate very complex diseases like the MPS diseases. We wanted to change both how companies would develop drugs, how advocacy would look at that development, and how FDA policy would be changed, and maybe how legislation could enhance or expand the innovation for development of rare disease treatments. The truth is that despite all the progress in rare disease treatments, there's only around 5% of treatments that of diseases that have a treatment. And so there's a, a huge innovation gap that exists in rare diseases. And despite all the efforts, there's still many diseases which are either too rare or just not had any treatments developed whatsoever. So the foundation's goal was to try to accelerate biotechnology innovation to get more patients treated over time and to try to do things that made the system smarter, more efficient, more effective. It involves both workshops and lectures and paper publications, as well as on occasion, you know, um, working with Congress on the Hill with um, giving rare disease patients a voice with their legislators to understand the, the challenge before these patients and why it's such an important healthcare issue for the U.S. when 10% of the U.S. population is affected by a rare disease. Yes, I know that um, you have had a multi-pronged approach, the, the Everlife Foundation has, of um, not just going to the legislators to complain, but going to them to make them aware, while simultaneously working with the FDA and with other uh, pharmaceutical companies and scientists, too, to figure out together what can be actually what can actually be done what what is it we're asking legislators mm -hmm. to do what what could the fda do so we can do this this drug development faster but keep it safe so I, it's really admirable and i know that um in the upcoming rare disease week which for listeners is the last week of february in the every year <clears throat> there will be something like 800 advocates going to the hill and those are people whose family members or who themselves have a rare disease and they're going to fly in from all over, and there will be appointments. And this has been going on a while, so members of Congress have become much more aware that this is a, a public health issue, and it affects 10% of the population. So <clears throat> that didn't used to be the case, and I think it's thanks to the efforts of every life um, that that is the case today. So the, the number of clinical trials has also greatly increased. Um, what should drug developers know about how to communicate with and how to treat patients as partners? That's quite the talk about how patients now can contribute to how clinical trials are planned, how protocols are designed. And sometimes it's said that now the listening of, to patients has become very good, but the responding to them is still something that needs a lot of improvement. What is it that you think drug developers should know? Well, I think there's been a, certainly a sea change of attitude about the engagement of patients earlier in the process. And to some degree, it's still a little bit mechanical. And for some companies, it's very difficult because of the concerns about compliance and other issues. And some of those legal concerns about compliance and interacting with patients does create, you know, a limitation on how companies behave and make them more difficult at 
let's say, being fluid and how they work more closely with patients. The drug development process is not normally engaged patients that well, except as subjects. And to bring them into the strategy or the early part is, is tricky. And I think for most companies, their patient, their patient advocacy group is the single point of contact with patients, but that group is not necessarily running drug development. And so the challenge is there's a hard to get the organizational people at companies that really make decisions actually connected to patients in a way that's productive and compliant both. The second thing is recognize that the investigators also have a role in all of this and they also are a little more protective of who their patients are and what's happening. And so all of this has to kind of be coordinated as three parties, the investigators who are the doctors taking care of these patients, the patients and the company. We've put forth at the foundation and at the company you know, our view about the engagement of patients at various stages and in a more complex, nuanced way that involves understanding what's the disease that patients have and getting that information directly from them rather than their doctors who may not necessarily appreciate how, what, what they are feeling. And also conducting trials that are not really drug trials but are trials that simply allow us to measure patients and let them talk to us directly in a formal way to allow us to create data that helps us understand them at a quantitative level. And the third thing that is really important is as you get treatment efficacy data and you understand what your drug is doing is getting understanding of the benefits risk of that treatment and what do patients think of it? Is it accomplishing what it needs to accomplish? Is it a meaningful effect for them or not? And that third piece is something that companies need to work on as well. So I think what companies need to do is get a little more sophisticated in not just using patient advocacy, but developing within the organizations ways to integrate patients into the early understanding and learning of the disease, the measurement of the disease, and also appreciating the benefit risk aspects of the treatment they've developed with regard to how well it meets patients' needs in the end. This takes a little bit more oh, effort really... than just one patient advocacy person. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes. I, I, I've heard that described uh, as putting together co <coughs> a cohort of patients who can be ad advisory, but not just bringing them in for one meeting so there can be a check mark, but keeping them in the process and uh, having them revisit what's going on as it's happening throughout yeah. the whole drug development process. There's There's a blend of things. I think a patient advisory boards are good to do and it, they're compliant because of they're contractually based and they have a, a purpose that's contractually written. And so that's one way to get, and you need to select a broad enough array of patients. But you do need to do things like the burden of illness surveys where you really let patients out in the community respond, not just the ones that are, <clears throat> who are very active, but the broader array of patients and, and measure them as well. So all those pieces of contact. Now at Ultragenics, we have a, a group that actually develops endpoints and evaluates patients and specializes in that. And they are a group that interacts more directly um, with patients in various settings. And they combine with the patient advocacy group that will hold the patient ad board and other types of structures. I just think in order to make it work, in order to take patient input and turn it into action, 
It has to plug into the mm -hmm. company at many different places and be put in the forum and in the right time so that they can have an impact and so that we can learn ahead of the need and be able to, to plan our programs in a way that's more um, effective. I know your company, Ultragenics, is one of the most patient-centric companies that I think anybody could imagine, and that it, it, you really can see the patient touch throughout the, the company, including some of the, thing, some of the things that patient families will likely struggle with, like how to use their insurance policies when there's a new drug that's um, not covered, but they may actually be entitled to it. Well, people in your company know their way around that, and so um, they know the ropes. They know how to talk to insurance companies. So you've got in place, if someone's in a clinical trial, a call center where people can call in and say, what what do I do? And they say, don't worry, we'll, we'll help you with this. You're entitled to the coverage. There are many things like that that can cause patients to stumble and in some cases accidentally spend their own money or drop out of the trial. Or So there's, <clears throat> I think Ultragenics has done one of the most admirable jobs of that, I must say. What should be the priorities now for drug developers and patients and regulators working together? Well, I think we have to develop stronger, respectful, trusting relationships where drug developers understand that patients have their own voice and that they shall not control it or change it. The patients should realize that both the scientists, the regulators, and the drug developers have a role in actually changing the future for patients. And as long as everyone understands both sides and behaves in the right way with the right principles, we should be able to learn from each other and collaborate on creating better drugs with a better data that would help support their approval and utilization. It is challenging sometimes because there is so much anti-pharma activity and so much legal activity that we get caught up in the bigger political picture when these patient groups have their kids on the line, their lives of their colleagues and the future of their patients are waiting for them to take action and companies should recognize the incredible moral responsibility to handle these things with the right in the right way and to keep the patient's interest in mind and, and also their independence um, protected. If we can achieve these basic principles and then I think this is going to be an important collaboration for actually doing a better job of addressing the needs of rare disease patients. That, that's that's so good to hear. I, I really appreciate your perspective and I think um, that a lot of people are going to benefit from listening to this podcast. I thank you very much um, Dr. Kakis for being on today. Thank you Steve for having me. Happy to help out. And we're speaking Sure, sure. We're speaking today with Dr. Emil Kakis. That was the uh, podcast today. Uh, he's the Chief Executive Officer of Ultradenics Pharmaceuticals, and he's the founder of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.